Hello and welcome to the ArtScoop podcast. My name is Sarah Modjanowski. Today I'm talking with Warwick Baird, an artist and lawyer living in Bondi. We start out discussing identity in the digital age and then talk through some of Warwick's legal career before moving into discussion of his art practice and focus on the dreaming mind. I've put a link to Warwick's website in the show notes and on the ArtScoop website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This is a whole topic, identity. It's a problem topic because it's so, um, you know, we're, we're enmeshed in identity at the moment in academia, in the arts and everything. I think it's just swamped with too much focus on identity. You know? There's a whole world out there that's got nothing to do with identity you know? so <laughs> or gender. <laughs> so, yeah. so we can kind of like get on with, <laughs> with the world and let those things unfold as they will, you know. Um, but if you're focusing it on through identity, yeah, it, it, it's kind of intriguing because I think, I mean, you know, there's, there's your relationship with yourself as, uh, and your relationship with yourself through this trial you've left, and then there's whoever's looking at the trial who knows nothing about you, their relationship with you. And I think that's really interesting because so often, like yourself, you know, you did a, you did a search, you do a Google search, you're going to interview this person, you do a Google, you, you search on the internet using Google or DuckDuckGo or some other... Um, search engine and, and inevitably you'll come up with a bunch of things, a website maybe, you know, a profile on something like LinkedIn, you know, and some bits and pieces that are floating around, you know, and you form a view, you know, and you talk to a few people you know, like you talk to your husband, you know, so you form this view and, and then you go in to meet the person, you've never met them before, right? you know nothing about them other than this constructed reality. And, and you've already formed this kind of emotional landscape. This, I mean, it must be, it's, it's like micro-celebrity for everybody. Because mm. everybody, y- you can do a search on, and there might be some bits of something that are out, out on the planet that um, gives you, allows you to start hooking on to all sorts of preformed ideas. And then you meet the person, and you've already got this whole kind of profile that you've built up, mm. good or bad. You know? And so you're already relating to them th- through the profile. Y- y- you know, you're not even relating to them a- as they present. You know? And that's what we can do with every everybody can do with everybody. And it's such a funny thing. It's a very it's, funny thing. It's like I've not met you before, but that's it right. doesn't feel weird because I know you. That's right. Because I've gone digging through who you are. Yeah, but it's a, probably a, the opposite for you. That's right. Well, to some extent, but of course, I, I you know I looked at your website and. Um, you know, I picked up some information. So there's multiple little, there's a website and a few other little um, URLs, you know. And so I see name change. So I see, you know, you've got one name and you've got this other name. So I go, okay, well, that's the married name, you know. Yeah. And uh, I know very little about you through your husband because he didn't really say anything. You know? Which is surprising because normally he doesn't stop talking. Yeah, well, we usually talk about art. Which right? is great. So, so we get into art. Uh, but he did mention a couple of things, right. And so, yeah, you form a view. So, so you go and you meet, and, you, and, and, and the intriguing thing in a way is if you're perhaps a, a 15-year-old or a 19-year-old or something and you've been raised in that world, then you, 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 you participate quite consciously in what you feed into this portal to the, to the outside world. So you are consciously manufacturing something. Now, you don't have complete control because it's a bit like making a work of art. You know, you consciously try to do something, but all this unconscious stuff comes in. Um, however, you, you are consciously aware that you're putting something to the 
to the world that's going to be accessed through these digital things. So you're, you're making all these choices. Whereas perhaps for the older generation, you think, oh, I'll just put that online, you know? And then you hope the picture looks good and you've got some text and hope it reads well, you know? And uh, you don't think about something where your name was mentioned in a newspaper article 15 years ago that's now widely accessible. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And you know, if people are going to do like yourself, if you come from a research background, you're going to probably trawl through more than the first few listings on Google. You know, you might go down to page 20 or something because you want to really want to see what's what's turning up somewhere down the algorithm. Um, and all of that constructs this. The main thing is is you don't come you come to very, you probably come to nothing fresh anymore. You know? I don't know. It depends. That's not completely true. But but if you if you wish. You can form, you, you can acquire quite a broad um, perception through these mediums. I think it takes away the novelty of the chance meeting, though, because unless you really do have a, a real world conversation with someone before you've accessed anything about them online, you don't have that initial human connection of like, hang on, who are you? What's my gut reaction to you? What's the emotional reaction to you? Because you've already got that, that you've collated. That's right. And so it's, it's a totally different experience. That's right. So it's like a confirmation bias. You've already got a, a preformed view. Yeah. Uh, so you've already got a bias. So, so you, are, you are select. You then, uh, uh, depending on the bias, which you will have various levels of awareness in yourself of, you then select the information out of what presents t to confirm your bias. So you, you, you think they're like this, uh, from what you've, you've picked up on, on, on the internet, and then you meet them, and you, you're you start filtering what matches and what doesn't match what you've preformed, rather than just Forming a, forming a view yeah. with no view preformed. Now, of course, there's all these indicators that, that you've already preformed views about as a general position. You know, the person turns up in a certain type of clothing or a certain type of this. You know, you've, got, you've already got these ideas, you know. Mm. So, so you're already going to slot it in. But, but in, in this current age, you've formed a very particular view about that person uh, without ever having met them. Which is... And, and it leads to a whole sense of familiarity when you have no familiarity whatsoever. You, know, you, you, you can like, in the sense of actually having known in the, know this person, you, know, you read all this stuff. And, and it must, I suspect it must be a bit like previously anybody that had a public profile. Mm. You know, somebody would read an author and they'd read all their works and they never met the person. You know? and they'd read the reviews and other people's observations and then they go and meet them, you know. You know so it's a bit like that, but it's like that now for everybody. Yeah, it's, it's no longer one-sided or exclusive. That's where right. Like, as, as a celebrity, someone is meeting you and they know you, but you don't know them. It, it goes both ways, the dynamic now. That's which right. Is, which is quite interesting. Which, which, is, which is interesting itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I actually found that quite funny because my expectation coming into the research about you was very different to what I found. Right. Because Michael talked a lot about that he was really interested and inspired by your art practice. And then it was this sideline of, but he's also a lawyer. Right. And because that's his view of yeah. you. Yeah. So I started my search with that sort of framework. And then to come on a very almost meditative website. Yeah. And the first, the first paragraph really, really struck me. Like the take the time 
to nourish your soul and to right. slow right down totally through my expectation of what a lawyer would be like <laughs> and i was like i have to challenge my entire concept of lawyer <laughs> because this doesn't fit that's right well yeah yeah maybe yeah it's interesting i'm going bright red here at the thought of somewhat embarrassment um yeah that's interesting i mean yeah it's I, um it's, it's it's um what do i say about that yeah I think that I think that's a nice thing if that happens. Um, yeah, you know, the nice thing in the in the people are multi-dimensional. You know, that's a sort of a cliche, but um, you know, and that's perhaps the, the good thing about. Well, I, I don't know. Yeah, there's probably nothing much to say about that. <laughs> I, I found it really nice. I found yeah. it. It was very holistic. It wasn't that's my website for being a lawyer and like that's my website for being an artist and they're two entirely separate things. It felt very much like the art and the law and the almost anthropological activism mm. through Flooded Dreams was all this whole which was related to who you are rather than being like dispersed. Well, that's, that's you know, when I... It was early da um, early stages of my engagement with, with the internet when I when I built the site or did the site and um, I'd spent uh, you know pretty much two years living in a tent drawing right? <laughs> with, with a couple of breaks every few weeks back down in Sydney to do the domestics um, and then a little stint where I did a, a, a short contract um, at the Royal Commission into trade union governance. As a lawyer, right, for four four days a week, then I go back up the mountains, live in the tent, and go drawing. And um, so I came out of I, I came I came out of a period of minimal technology contact, where I was spending you know three to eight hours a day sitting out on the edge of the the escarpment drawing, just drawing, you know, with nobody around. So it was a very meditative um, experience. Because uh, and this went on for years, like literally. I think I started in um, 2014 and uh, the beginning, and then my father died later in that year. And uh, part of the grieving process was to go and um, immerse myself even more in the drawing. And then I finished that series at the end of 2016. So um, initially down the Snowy Mountains, and then up in the Blue Mountains. Um, so the end result of that was was I, I had I had come to the feeling that the process of drawing like this was nourishing your soul. I mean that's actually how I felt. You know I thought this is this this is what's been going on. This is how I feel. You know so that, so when I came to put the website together, um, you know I thought well that was my experience of doing that, and um, it would be nice if the drawings if people picked up some of that sense from the drawings and the way to be able to do that was to take your time and look at them mm. not which people are only going to do so much of on a on a on a on an internet site you know because it's it's all geared towards moving quickly um so so that's where that that statement of take your time and nourish your soul because that was the experience i felt in actually in doing the work. It was like a, you know, a couple of years of, of long meditation. Um. Yeah. 
It, it was very refreshing. <laughs> it definitely, it definitely challenged my perspective. It was, it was a nice surprise. Um, from that sort of holistic sense, what was your connection between art and law? Is there a connection for you between art and law? It reads very much like there is. Well, the immediate connection is is um, the person doing it. It funnels through myself. Um, the, the 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 more surface connections are more. It, you know, the two the, the three strong streams I've pursued in the law have been um, around issues to do with land and sea, mostly as they relate to Indigenous people and their rights in land and sea, uh, then issues around justice or the abstracted idea of justice, so from criminal law to corruption stuff. Um, now the justice side and the art, um, I think I think it had more at a somewhat deeper level, um, the connection is a desire to uh, a certain fidelity and truth to what I see. And um, I think that's where the impetus to be in what I th originally thought may be areas where justice might be served in the law uh, to practice in those areas. Now I have changing views about about that um, but I think that's where one connection is. Um, they're very different in the, in the sense of uh, one's language, one's verbal language. Um, and often adversarial. Uh, the other is uh, can be very adversarial. The the, the art. Uh, I was reading something that Moreau had talked about years ago, and it was very much you know, a very adversarial kind of approach to this impetus to make art. Um, But one is very much about the way I practice, the art I've been doing is very much about looking, processing, and then engaging and connecting. The law is, is, um, is, is you know, a thousand, thousand places removed from that in terms of one being the visual and the other being more language. But I think, I think at, a, at a deeper level, um, They do, they do intermesh in, in, in very, fairly complex ways, but they do intermesh, yeah. Oh. And you've already sort of led me into my next question there about being very passionate about indigenous rights, particularly, as you said, land and, and sea, which sounds very much about place as well as about justice. Yeah. 
Yeah, my, my um, yeah, you know, I got involved in indigenous rights coming out of being a prosecutor, and one day I I woke up in court when I was awake, but I stopped. I thought, well, you know, I don't, I don't really want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm a bit tired of jailing people. You know. That seemed fairly negative. So I, I, I sat down and I thought, well, what's, what's the, uh, why did I get into law? And I thought, well, it's social justice. And I thought, what's the big issue in Australia? This is back in the mid-90s. Mabo had been handed down, the native title legislation was being negotiated. And I thought, well, the big issue is, is how, do, how are the Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people going to get on in this country? <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll go and have a look at that. And I, d I hadn't had any contact with Indigenous people much. I knew Fred Hollows quite well and that was a bit of an inspiration. So I came, I happened to get a, a job in a, in a very small law firm that just did Indigenous land issues and sea issues. Um, and I became quite passionate in this, in that it, 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 there seemed to be such a fundamental blindness to what the roots of this country's history was. It seemed like there'd been a huge ton of concrete put over the whole thing and, and all this structure built on top, whereas underneath it there was all this stuff that we we refused to pay any attention to as a generalisation, but that there were cracks appearing and stuff was coming up through. Um, so I got involved in the Indigenous side of things. Uh, I hadn't been to art school. Um, I'd done a few night classes in drawing. And uh, you know, I was very moved by what I saw in the Indigenous side of things. It was a huge eye-opener to me. You know, I, was in, I was involved with Indigenous clients who you know, lived in tin sheds with no electricity and gas or, uh, or running water in the, you know, just heading towards the turn of the 20th century. I thought, you know, in Australia, I thought, what's going on here? Um, and bit by bit, you know, from coming from suburban Sydney, uh, I got exposed to a sense of just how vast the difference of cultures was. It was it was just so huge, and 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 at one level I thought, well, that's really interesting, and why why aren't we all interested in that? Putting aside all the negative stereotyping from both um, avenues of the divide, um, that ought to just be really interesting to everybody. But it wasn't to, to a lot of people. Um, and then being involved in the actual doing of legal cases, particularly lobbying government and seeing how difficult it was to make any progress because there was such an embedded discrimination or, or racial perception that influenced how government dealt with Indigenous people, um, it became very frustrating. But I still remain quite passionate about about the injustice of it, and that there were these people who who were fabulous in many ways, and you know, had fantastic sense of humour, and yet copped so much shit. And I thought, wow, you know. Um, and then as time went on, I moved out of legal practice, and I got a grant to make a film, um, and I was interested in exploring filmmaking. And one of my clients had been an indigenous group down in southwestern New South Wales, and they were fighting to get the protection of um, a huge burial site so I th that was being flooded by the Murray-Darling Basin Commission. So I thought I'd go and make a film about them. 
and the conflict. And it was a, it was a steep learning curve because I didn't know anything about filmmaking. And I had this money and it, from the state government, I had to produce something. And so there, it, it was very uh, interesting times. Um, and the community had known me as a lawyer and I turned up acting for one faction in the Aboriginal community and I turned up as a filmmaker you know, a couple of weeks later wanting to talk to everybody. So there was a certain um, process of, of trying to get everybody on side uh, in this new identity that I was presenting them with. Uh, and I had a fantastic cinematographer who was extremely experienced, so, so it worked. And that got me very, very interested in then, and, and I went with it in how Aboriginal people relate to land, because I essentially knew nothing, even though I'd done legal work for them. So, so I went down with the mind going, um, how do Aboriginal people relate to land? And so I just kept asking myself that question as we, as we filmed and then as we edited it. Um, and you know, looking at it years later, of course it's a very, it's a very surface engagement with that. You know, it, it does, and it reflects my, both my complete limited understanding and also the Aboriginal people's um, concern to keep what is secret and sacred to them to themselves. Understandably so. Um, so from that, my you know my my interest, enthusiasm, and sort of passion for for the the engagement with Aboriginal people has has remained to some extent. My um, in some of my thoughts about how this relationship might go f into the next part of the 21st century has shifted. Um, a lot's happened in Indigenous affairs in 20 years, particularly in relation to land and land ownership and land rights. Um, and then I went to art school after making the film, so I sort of moved out of law, other than doing a little bit of consulting work, to um, to studying fine art. And I went to a place called the National Art School and it had a very strong Western tradition of teaching fine art. So it was hands-on studio based and I think the the art history and theory department, which was a um, fabulous department, uh, sort of stopped teaching art history and theory about 1930. Uh, I don't think, I think we mentioned Picasso. And then we went straight to um, Duchamp because you know, the feminists had got hold of the one stream in the art in the art uh, department, and well, it was not so much the feminists, but the the kind of Duchamp was very big. Duchamp was very big, and I couldn't figure out why at art school. It was a complete mystery to me, and and, and we'd bypassed all these other 20th, 20th century artists, and then I've just been to the Duchamp exhibition recently at the Art Gallery in New South Wales, and it's fantastic. Yeah, it was just really, really good, and I go, wow, yeah, okay, I get it. It's really interesting, you know. Um, so I got trained in the Western tradition of making art, and so we looked back on all Eastern Europe, mostly on on Western Europe's art canon. And um, there was a little bit on Indigenous art, not a great deal. Uh, and so it, it had moved my perception of the world a long way away from what I'd been doing legally, which was um, the late nine, you know, the late nine, the nineteen nineties uh, engagement of Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people on, on this landscape. 
Um, and now, more recently, I, I spent these long periods up in the mountains drawing in, in a very representational style. And as I look on the landscape, um, it, it goes through me, my thoughts about, well, this that I'm seeing had indigenous people moving across it for tens of thousands of years. How does that influence me as I sit and look at what I look at and draw it in a very Western European way of, of representing you know, perspective and, and realism in, in, in making art. Um, so that's a way where you know, the, 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 the threads of, of those elements of my history have come together in, how, in the sort of art I've been making in the last few years. Um, and I, re I remain having a, a strong f felt passion for the relationship with the natural world in this country. I think it's a very, very powerful landscape for everybody and the Aboriginal people relate to it completely differently to how I as a European descendant relate to it. And a lot of the time in my legal practice I'd hear um, European farmers and settlers say, you know, I've been here three generations and I really have a deep feeling for the landscape. And as if that had some similarity to our indigenous people have, and I think it has very little similarity. It doesn't have the cosmology or the mythology or the 40 or 50,000 years linkages or the psychology or the psychic linkages that an indigenous people seem to have. But it's not to negate the depth of feeling that, that European um, descendants have, it's just very different. And so I, I think, yeah, so, so I still have that, that passion, but my passion for indigenous relationship, the indigenous rights and land rights um, is evolving in, in different directions, I think, particularly in, in the current discussions as we talk about treaties. I think it's, I think a treaty is really essential, treaties, and I think it, requires very complex, long negotiations um, between the Indigenous people and the non-Indigenous people. It's not a straightforward process by any means. Yeah. Yeah. I actually find it really, I found it really fascinating to watch and I had to go back and watch it a second and a third time. but again challenging my expectations my my filter of indigenous australia is very much shaped through current media and what i was taught at school i have no first hand exposure really at any level other than potentially mingling with people in the community with or without sort of awareness of their their cultural heritage so i found it really quite an emotional piece because I, it felt like both sides were represented without bias. It felt like 
there was really strong voices coming from both perspectives on the issue at hand about the burial ground, but also very briefly touching on the broader themes of cohabitation and culture and and the entanglements between all of that. And the, the anthropologist in me sort of was like, <laughs> that's so fantastic. And it got, I got really excited by that. But the representation that you've helped to shape there is so radically different to the media I've seen about Indigenous Australia, because it's always very, and maybe that's just my my lack of exposure maybe, it's, it's always very traditional looking and song and dance and campfire and didgeridoos and it, it's, I know it's a stereotype, but I also don't have another way to look at that at the moment. So mm. it was nice to see it at a much more human level of people talking emotionally about a particular place and a particular set of actions around that place. Mm. Yeah, well, one of the things, my heritage is Scottish. You know, I think of eight great grandparents, seven of them are Scottish. I was born in Mexico. My mother was South African. My father was four generations Australian from Scotland. So they all go back, but they all go back to Scotland. And when I was making Flutter Dreams, it, it, it seemed to me, it, it, I found myself on this kind of place uh, of being put at the edge of my own culture to look back onto my own culture. Because here I was on this, as I perceived it, this edge with this other world uh, that I knew nothing about, uh, that was right here now in front of me in this country that I'd been raised in, uh, and yet was so radically different. And it, it was almost like from being on that position, having to turn around and look back onto my own culture. Uh, and that's where it started to draw out for me a sense of the complexity of, of how all these people um, are, are engaging on pieces of land, areas of land and sea. Um, and I was very keen, I'd come, out of a, I'd come out of a background, the immediate background of doing legal work for a very pro-Indigenous small legal firm that acted very vigorously for the interests of Aboriginal people from an Anglo perspective. Uh, and before that, I'd come out of a background of being a prosecutor. And the prosecutor is supposed to be the model litigant. Uh, the defendant's job is to get the, get the client off. In the idealized world, the prosecutor's role is to serve justice. Right? It's not to get a conviction as such. It's to make sure that the person gets a fair trial uh, and that the, the prosecution, the crown, which is the prosecution, is um, is the model litigant and, and pursues the case with rigour, but absolutely uh, with impeccable integrity. That's the ideal. Whereas the, the, you know, the defence really is just to get the client off. Right? And so here I was kind of, I'd gone to working on the defence side almost of the indigenous game. You know, the, the object was just to get the, was to get the, um, the, 
interests of the client served as best as possible and the client was indigenous. So when I got into the filmmaking, I wanted to try and go back to that sort of rigor almost of, of, of trying to have an impartiality. Now, of course, I couldn't be impartial because I, I, you know, I, I live in the country and, I've, and I have a view and, have, and have a heritage, but I wanted to try and see if I could look at all sides with uh, as much clarity as I could present how they saw their, their component of the world. Um, and to draw out of that um, some sense of, of how these types of issues were unfolding in the country. Um, yeah, and it was, it was a very emotional experience making the film uh, because it was op opening up to things I had no understanding of in, in this country. There was one interview we did with some uh, women down in Mildura, or Wentworth, I think it was, uh, down by the river. And it was before the Human Rights Commission had come out with the Little Children, uh, not the Little Children, sorry, the um, Bringing Them Home report, which was on the Stolen Generation. So, And I knew nothing about what we now know as the Stolen Generation. And here was this woman, middle-aged, well-dressed, highly articulated, educated, indigenous woman from the area being interviewed by us and a couple of hours into the interview she started getting very upset and then she burst into tears and she starts saying about how the children were, had been taken and uh, how when she was a kid she was, she was told to uh, when, when you saw the lights of the government trucks coming you'd uh, you'd run off into the bush and you'd hide you get told to run off in the bush because they come to take the children what the hell is this all about? I was gobsmacked. Mm. What, the, what, you know, what what's going on here? And uh, so below the surface of this of this um, presentation that we have of how how things are in the world of Australia, it, it it's very very different, and people's experience of it is very very different. And um, there was another woman there. Dottie Lawson, and she'd had a very tough time. She'd been in one of the children's homes. And um, she makes a statement in the film about, uh, along the lines of, um, that we can't just pretend that it's all honky-dory, that it's all, it's, it's not like that. You know, you've got to go back and we've got to um, retrace the history. And I think that's, you know, I think this, the, the whole current call in the Indigenous community uh, for um, voice, treaty, truth is how they've framed it, I think is, is very potent and with the truth element um, being some processes where everybody in the country can get a deeper understanding about what went on. And it's not a question of apportioning blame or anything, it's just a core portion of, of being real and being present on the country because this is the history. You know, this is where we live. You know, we ought to know about it. You know. And then at the same time, it's the 21st century, and I was just reading an article today that, uh, you know, there's a land council in Western Sydney, an Aboriginal land council, that's now the, the biggest private owner of land in, the Western, in Western Sydney. 
So if you're a developer or you're looking at developing land in Western Sydney, you will be dealing with the land council. So, you know, we have the one thing of the Northern Territory doing song and dance and traditional stuff. And then we have, you know, the, the biggest private landholder in Western Sydney is Aboriginal. You know? So I think when a treaty comes to be negotiated, uh, or treaties, this is, the, this is the stuff that has to be teased out. It's not all... Um, it's not all from the in, from the non-indigenous side. It, it 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 ought not to be. Oh, isn't it terrible? We we took all this land and everything, so now we've got to make some sort of compensation. All sorts of com all sorts of recompense and adjustments have been made have been made for years in different ways. And and how all of that is um, balanced out so that all parties get a sense that this truly is a negotiated settlement of uh, this country now is, is, is very complex and, and, and ought to take a long time. It ought to be started, but it ought to take 10 years or more, you know, mm. as, as it's all worked through. Um, yeah. I find that so interesting because I have such mixed perspectives of it. I, from a very academic anthropological perspective, I want to know and to understand. And from that cultural upbringing, I just have a total ignorance because that's the, the, the primary school, high school education process was so simplified mm. in the learning of like, you know, Captain Cook came here, this happened, that happened, there were fights, people died. Like it, it was so, and then this, and then that, and then this, that you got no sense of it being real. It was too much like a storybook. It was too much like the good guys and the bad guys. And it like the story hasn't finished. Whereas it's so much more complex than that, but it's very hard to try and find a point to engage where it doesn't feel like it's all going to blow up in your face for not already having attempted to know more. Hmm. It, it, it's, yeah, it's, uh, which is where the importance of it is because it, it, it will assist non-Indigenous Australians uh, to, in that wonderful phrase, to be here now, from Mr. Ram Das. <laughs> um, it will assist yeah, non-Indigenous to be present in this country, you know? yeah. because that isn't history. That's that's current. That's playing out now. You know, it, it's like Indigenous people. Uh, it's a sort of thought that ha I came across years ago and keeps coming up. You know, Indigenous people aren't some disadvantaged group of white people. They're, they're the kind of the survivors of a couple of hundred years of warfare, you know, like they're refugees in a sense, except for the country, uh, they're still on their own, they're still broadly in the same sovereign area, the same area, um, often not on their own country. Um, and so from a completely different sovereign society, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not that, you know, they're not immigrants. 
Yeah. Well, they're not disadvantaged uh, Anglo people who've, uh, who've, who've come across hard times. You know, uh, you know their roots are, are in this. For all of them, their roots uh, are into uh, a history when Europeans didn't exist here or non-Indigenous non people didn't exist from Europe or from Asia or anywhere. You know, that means that their great-great-great-grandfather come up, or their great, however far, you know, that's them. And the transition from all of them was highly, highly fractured and fraught because it was a, you know, it was, it was a warfare. You know, it was, it was pushed off land, it was put into missions, it was uh, poisoned, it was killed, you know, it was rounded up. And there were some goods and bads, you know, but, but that's, that's how these two, that's how the one culture collided with the following cultures. Yeah. And yeah, we learn, you know, you learn Captain Cook, but even when you, when you, you go and look at the, the basics of that sort of history, I've just been down on Bruny Island in Tasmania for four weeks, having a bit of um, sort of reflective time to see about my next art project, you know. And um, I was house-sitting a friend's uh, farm, so it was quite a pleasant solitary time and um, yeah, I went down to the lighthouse on South Bruny and there's some text about uh, early European contact and you know well before Cook was floating around the French are coming up the coast and you know there's, there's, so, so there's all this this kind of the world didn't start in Australia in 1788 you know on that day you know it, it, it's not like the world started there then you know? and even a few days before the French were floating up and down yeah. And so, this this kind of moment, this this idea that history starts on that moment, bang, is how we tend to get. Well, how I was tended to talk, be taught it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then so the view of Aboriginal people from that pers the view from that perspective of Aboriginal people is uh, they're out west somewhere. They're out there somewhere. Or they're up there somewhere, and they're still doing whatever that stuff they do is with boomerangs and spears and stuff. Mm. This is, this is, yeah, this happens. This happens in tribal, in, in traditional tribal parts of the country. Uh, they've got, but this is just one. This is the history. This is still present in some of the, the places. Most of people live in urban New South Wales and, and Queensland. You know. Yeah. And on top of that, they're like three percent of the population. So, you know, the, the other ninety-seven percent of the population, in 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 any, in, in, you know, we've gone onto the sort of indigenous side quite a lot. But, but in any engagement with this landscape, the other ninety-seven percent of the population needs to uh, feel like um, they're participating, and and where they come from is important, and how they see the world is important. And I think in the art side, I think it's quite interesting because at the moment, there's, you know, there's such powerful art coming out of indigenous communities in the landscape area that I mean you, you know the the last couple of I think um, w win prizes you know that they've been dominated by well the, not even the prize the actual short shortlist you know the, the, the works that have been hung have been dominated by the indigenous works and they're, you know they're, they're very strong engaging works of art but it's it, it seems to me it's, it's you know a place that's, that's really look really ought to be really interesting to look at is w what is the non-indigenous community, what, what is going on in the non-indigenous world about new takes on how to be in, how to see this place, 
Yeah. I've definitely found that interesting watching over the last few years, the evolution of no, or it being very rare for there to be an acknowledgement of country through to it being the pop-up on every website and sovereignty was never ceded. And from my perspective, that ver feels both very loud and in your face, but also very band-aided because it's not open for discussion. It's not open, like every lecture we have is started with this acknowledgement of the land we're on, but not a conversation about why that acknowledgement is or isn't important or who we convened with to agree on that acknowledgement or what happens now we acknowledge that it's not our land and it feels very frustrating because you try and approach academics and you try and approach other students and they're like no no that's just stuff we have to say mm. and that feels so contradictory that it's it's this wall we've put up to say look we're doing our part when it feels almost like another barrier to be overcome because then you've got to tear down that that band-aid solution to actually start unpacking the ideas again to go like why is that three percent and that 97 percent only communicating <laughs> at this point of yes. acknowledgement to country that's like that's right. the only place it it meets in the the wider world and yeah. it feels so strange yeah i i i, I have very Uh, mixed thought, well, not even mixed thought. I think it's. I think it's. I don't think it's a. What? What should I? What do I want to say about? It? Uh, uh, look, uh, the acknowledgement to country, which springs up the so-called acknowledgement of the country. This this stock phrase that mostly in Sydney comes out of the Metropolitan Land Council. I think one guy there's drafted it up, and that's the, that's the one they've come to to spread around. You know, and, and so the wording suits that component of the indigenous political structure you know. uh, and it's seeped into everywhere that there's some government involvement and then it's kind of spilled over often into every other enterprise now because it's like ticking one of the boxes to say you're current and you're up to date with uh, well, it's got to be gender, it's got to be gay rights, or, you know, LGBTQT rights, and it's got to be Indigenous rights. You've got to tick a few boxes and then you can get on with doing business as usual, you know. Um, now, the upside of it is that it does, it does make a statement, you know, the statement's made that Indigenous people exist. Well, that's quite good. It's not the only thing that is going on in this country, though. Um, and as you say, why there's no negotiation about it. There's no discussion about it. There's no, it's locked at a point in time. It's not, you know, it's not like it's a short history of the place we're on. It's not like, and then some other people came, and then they did this and then they did this, and now we're here you know, at an art school. It's not like it's a little grounding way to be present here. It's just this statement about something um, that happened sometime previously when the land was legally uh, taken by somebody else and um, so I, I think it is uh, of some value 
but uh, it's a little bit doctrinaire and uh, it's it, it said at every every interface now not just where there's some indigenous non-indigenous element of what then is going to follow um, now, if, if, if there was to be a statement that rooted people in the present where they are, that, that would be good. Uh, and that's more, more than just the indigenous component of where they are. Yeah, it feels like the intention is probably right, but it's just become, as you said, like the stock phrases of, of, of that box ticking exercise. And it almost feels like a lot of the people who are delivering that don't actually know anything about it. They've just been told this is what you've got to stick at the top of every speech that you, you present. And it, it, it comes to feel very non-genuine in a way. And, and I have heard it done very few times incredibly well, where it does bring you into that present moment because there's an acknowledgement of more than just like, this is this people of this nation. And then, okay, right, like, let's move on. Mm. But I think it's very hard to to try and explain to people why it's important, but why it's important as a genuine personal connection to here and now and the history, not just that recital. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, if the individual who's reciting it has some personal um, empathetic engagement with that, with with the with the history of the place they're on and the indigenous connection with that, then great, and 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 ex expand out on that in saying it. Um, if they have absolutely none, and the topic they're about to deal with has nothing to do with Australian history or Australia in the present and the future, or, you know, it's just to do with. You know, quantum mechanics or something, or, you know, the colour red and how it works, you know, or something, you know, it's, um, why go through this motion? Yeah. Um, and particularly where, you know, it, it, to the extent that there's some, there's supposed to be some, or there may be, depending on how the, the phrases are crafted, um, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Well, it's not Aboriginal land anymore. It's legally not, you know. Uh, philosophically, maybe you can argue, or morally you might want to mount an argument. That's a whole complex debate in its own. But the idea that, uh, that it is currently Indigenous land, and in some instances it will be Indigenous land, it'll be owned by the land council. They've leased it to the university or the developer or something. The freehold title will be owned by the land council. And I think that side is where a lot of work could be done, just for people to understand the legal frameworks that, that deal with land and sea in Australia. You know, the native title structure, the uh, Aboriginal Land Rights Act in New South Wales, the Northern Territory Land Rights Act. You know, 48% or so of the Northern Territory is owned by Aboriginal people. Now that is, you know, has caveats on it because it's a territory, and the, as we saw with the Commonwealth uh, intervention into the Northern Territory, it, it's, it's, it's fairly easily able for the Commonwealth to override that in a territory. 
more difficult in a state without giving just compensation, but in, in a territory, and that's, and, and that's happened. But for people to understand the legal framework of ownership, the, the Anglo-Australian legal framework of ownership um, is very, I think would be very useful and very important. And then you can start seeing, well, that's the Anglo-Australian, that's, that's what's been imported from England, and that's the framework that's put here. Now, there's this whole other culture that has its whole worldview and its whole laws, cosmologies and mythologies, and all the rest of it. And, uh, and they're, they're, they're here. And they will have a completely different view of that bit of land. And isn't that interesting? And if you're going to do a treaty, how are the two of these, how are these going to work? You know, how are they going to evolve? Um, legally is one thing, but also practically and morally and, and, um, and so on. I feel like I could probably keep picking your brain on this for hours. <laughs> and I have, I have sort of two or three more questions I'd like to ask. So I'm going to say to be continued on that because I think that could go on indefinite yeah, yeah like i that's it's it's for me it's an area i feel like i need to go and do my own really like research and unpacking and start to to come at it academically but also very personally mm. um, especially coming into this arts sector because I, I feel like anthropology had such a different mindset mm. to arts mm. to how to deal with with the other mm, mm, mm. that um it's something i need to really unpack the idea of familiar and unfamiliar and that it's we're all here in the now and it needs to be tackled in that present moment not through that othering process that anthropology is very good right at yeah i mean this is a whole and it's something i'm constantly uh you know, re rethinking my own thinking on. I saw, um, of all things, uh, when I was on Bruni, uh, I don't have a TV at home, and uh, there happened to be a TV where, where I was, uh, which is a bit of an old technology these days, I guess. But, and I was watching a thing called, the, you know, the drum on ABC, where they have these panels. And the, the interviewer was up at the Gama Festival, and they had this panel, you know. One of the Dodsons was there on the panel. And they're talking a bit about treaty, and most particularly about this voice to, the, to Parliament. Uh, and it, it really got me starting to think a new track of, in my own thinking, about, uh, so what is, what would a treaty be, or treaties, what really would be involved in, in that uh, now? But also understanding and incorporating the realities of how we've come to be now, you know, the, the, the realities of of uh, what occurred in the, the um, clash between these two cultures. Or, well, I say two, but now, of course, the people who are here are from every culture on the planet. Mm. Yeah, so the, the, the dominant system is the one that's come, was important, you know, the legal system is the one that's come from England. But the, the people that now occupy this place are, are from all over, over the world. <laughs> so easy to keep going down yeah, that, down that rabbit hole. I'll throw yeah. you a, on a totally different yeah. tangent. Um, you have a very interesting rock climbing yeah. picture at the top mm. there. Mm. And I'm starting to get a sense a little bit of 
how your art connects to your understanding of land visually. And I, I wonder if that was a more physical way of engaging and connecting or whether I'm just reading too much into well I was very I was very heavily involved in climbing um, from sort of the late 70s through to uh, probably the mid 90s um, which you know in, in its own and I've, and I've actually re-engaged in the last year or two and it's fascinating because there's all these disputes now going on about access of climbers to cliffs because of Aboriginal heritage issues or Aboriginal ownership issues. So in the Grampians just uh, this year, uh, you know, a very large area of the Grampians has been closed to climbers very quick, very suddenly uh, by the Parks Victoria um, under appears to be pressure from Aboriginal Victoria uh, around concerns that parks have that they, that they will be sued for not protecting Aboriginal cultural heritage. Uh, and Victoria's quite at the forefront of, as a state, on treaty negotiations. So it, it's fascinating, you know, and, and I'm just involved now with a thing called the Australian Climbing Association. We're setting up a branch in New South Wales called the Australian Climbing Association New South Wales, which is a, an access organisation to advocate for climbers to get access to cliffs. And um, it's, it's, it's quite intriguing because you know, one of the cases I did when I was doing a lot of legal work for Aboriginal people was to try and get a bunch of water skiers thrown off a lagoon up in northern western New South Wales because it was desecrating an Aboriginal uh, sacred site. And now I'm kind of on the recreational users uh, side of things going, hmm, I don't like the idea of being locked out of climbing areas, you know. So we, we come back to this, uh, this, how we all engage on this landscape. Now climbing is, is very... Uh, in all those years, it, it brought me very much physically in contact with wild places or wilder places, uh, and with the physical aspect of, of 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 moving on rock. And the thing I found when I went up drawing for those long period, long months up in the Blues was, um, you know, I'd known the Blue, I'd been going to the Blue Mountains since I was like ten or so, you know, and uh, initially bushwalking, and then. Uh, than climbing, and, and I was very intensely into climbing for, for a long time. So uh, a trip to the Blue Mountains was essentially a trip to a climbing area. And then when I went drawing, I, it was like, oh, there's a whole world out here. Because, you know, you had limited time, you went up there, you went to one of these climbing areas and you climbed. You know? Then you came back to Sydney and went back to studying or whatever. Uh, whereas now I was going up to the mountains and I'd, and I'd go off somewhere and I'd just camp for, for weeks and draw. And I wasn't, and I was just drawing what was in front the whole of the landscape. And yet even doing that, I found my relationship with drawing cliffs was quite different to my relationship with drawing sky or bush, because I had this physical um, connection where I'd spent so much time climbing rocks, which um, was something that I, I discovered when I, a bit of a, a, bit of a, a detour. You know, I went to ar architecture school out of high school, and I did that for a year. And uh, I, was, I was young, and um, I was a fairly shy kid, and uh, I formed the view I couldn't draw. So I decided I'd better drop out of architecture, because I couldn't draw. And, uh, and I went off and did um, a degree in politics and then a degree in law. And uh, years later I decided, when I was working prosecuting, I'd go and revisit this idea that I couldn't draw. And luckily I came across a great, 
a great guy called Steve Wesley Gordon, and he had this. He ran these these life drawing classes that were fairly um, unique in in Sydney. I'd been to Julian Ashton's, and it was it was pretty stiff, and uh, you know you kind of measured things with your thumb and things, and, or, the, or your pencil. And, and Steve Wesley Gordon was all about the life energy in the model, and and you pick up on the energy, you know, the life energy. And then, and the first time I went to a life drawing class, I was blown away because I thought, wow, this is amazing, you know. And, and, and I couldn't, you know, the most I could do was a straight line. I just couldn't figure it out. You know, I just could not understand what was, what was in front of me. You know, I had a, I mean, I understood the figure, but I couldn't, I couldn't connect with it through this medium of a, of a mark-making instrument. And then over time, I came to realise that, or sense that, in fact, you know, you draw with, you sort of draw with your gut. You kind of draw from a, from deep in your body. That's where you make art from, you know. And and you kind of so when you sit in the landscape and you draw. This is my film. You know, you you you're sort of not really. You, you, there's only a certain element with with which you're drawing what you see. You know, you, you, if you're there long enough, you open out all all the senses and 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 you draw out of your whole sense of being in the place. And it just kind of registers most immediately through what you see out of your eyes. But but you sense the whole place, and that's what what you are coming out of. Well, what, what my experience was, and so that climbing stuff, I had this inbuilt sense of all these years of movement on rock and the the heat of the landscape and the, and the the texture and the feel of the the, the grain of the rock and and uh, the different seasons of being in those places. So when I was sitting there, not particularly moving, but making art, um, all of that memory stored in the body is, 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 is coming into play, including the present, you know, the present time of being there's sensory experience of the place. Um, because nothing I, I, I thought when I was doing life drawings, I thought well, everybody just draws themselves, meaning we don't realise it, but I guess it's a proprioception thing, or it's it's more an empathetic response to what's in front of one. You know, you feel it in your body, and in fact, you draw the feeling you have in your body. So if you've got a stiff neck, you draw the model's neck stiff, even if the model's neck's not stiff. And in the same way, you sort of have a sense of how your physical form is and how your structure is, and in a way, you know, you you you. you, you, you I think you know you're sensing that as you draw what's in front of you. So, with the greatest of rigor to draw a realist, proportionally correct as the eye sees it, figure you in fact are referencing also into your own sense of your own body. And the more you you can sense the the, the figures that your drawings, um, the more you can sense them in your in you that empathetic resonance then the more you can pick up what in fact is them. Um, and even there you still have this, uh, you know, you, you can't completely swamp yourself with the empathetic resonance. You, know, you always have your own sense of your body. And so one of the exercises we used to do with, with Steve Lee Gordon is, you, and I guess in a lot of the art schools, is you take the position of the model. So you could feel the stresses of the model. You could, you could feel that in, in your body. Um, so even when you're not taking that, you know, you're constantly referencing, mostly semi-consciously, into your own body. Um, and that's just with the model. The same is happening, I believe. Well, it depends on different artists and different, you know, w when, you're, when you're making a piece of art, 
I believe you sense everything that's around you as you make it. Um, so it all goes into whatever is turning up in front of you. Mm. Really interesting. And that's where my interest, you know, slid into that is I have, I have a strong interest in the unconscious processes and, and the dreaming mind. And um, I was watching a little um, excerpt from Chomsky. I, I came across a Chomsky in, interview. He was on a panel in some America somewhere. He was a few years old, four years old. It, it was about a topic that wasn't about his linguistics, but it was talking. He, he made the comment that we still don't know anything about the puppeteer he called it, you know, like why, you know, uh, I move my hand like this and not like that, you know, you know why does my m mind produce the dream it does, you know, and then after the dream, years, you know, months later, why do I look in that direction and not that direction, and then seeing that, you know, two, two months previously I had a dream with that type of element in it, and now you know, months later I'm looking in a direction and there's that type of element, you know, that speaker or something. Well, oh, yeah, there was that speaker back then in that dream, you know, when, when visually I could have looked at anything in the field of vision at that moment. Mm. So, you know, what's the stain on one's memory, on, my, on, my, on one's mind of remembering a dream? Not the dream itself, but the memory that you have that then goes away and you conduct your life. But, you know, um, still sometimes seems to present itself sometime down the track, at least in how your mind or your, or your, your, your being s selects information from the world. Because I think we have minimal conscious involvement in what we select from the world. I think that, you know, yeah, despite what we believe. We think. <laughs> I definitely agree with you on that. I think that's probably a really nice place to to ask you. How does all that come together for what what you're working on next? Uh, well, um, I'm in the in the process of uh, pulling some of these ideas uh, out of the ethereal re realm realm and. Putting them, uh, hoping to putting them into material form, as the copyright lawyers like to talk about it. Um, well, I, I've got fairly engaged again in, uh, in in watching my dreaming mind. So I spent uh, a month on Bruny Island, and I went down there to to house sit a farm, North Bruny. It was the middle of winter, so I thought, well, this is a wonderful opportunity because the sky and the light is so stunning. And it's also cold. The cold is a bit of an inhibitor to sitting out in the landscape and doing large-scale coloured pencil drawings. And I sort of wasn't moved to want to do that again. What I did find was that um, I was dreaming a lot. So I was doing a lot of writing. So I did a lot of writing based on that. And then it, it got me thinking that... Because um, I'd gone down uh, to sit a, a friend's farm, not a, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll approach this like an artist's residency. That that's, that'd be a good thing to do, you know. So I took a pile of paint and pencils down, and, and I was all set to make some art. You know. um, and it, my response to the landscape, uh, 
didn't draw out of me a desire to make visually make pictures. It's very powerful. It was very strong colours. I loved the colour and the like. And I got to thinking about why that might have been when I came back and I thought, well, one um, thought was it's because I don't have any relationship with that landscape. I've only been down there a couple of times in the last few months. So it's taken me a while to get a feel, essentially get a feel for the for, the, for how the landscape works on me and, and how I feel in it. And another thing I thought was it, it's the middle of winter and it's quite, a, it's quite a hard landscape. It's quite a hard sky. And it's a very, mar I, I call it a very maritime sky. It's like the sky comes off the Southern Ocean, whereas up here it's like the sky comes off Central Australia. So it's like a land, it's a, it's a big land sky, even in the middle of Sydney with a little bit of Pacific, you know, and Pacific from, from coastal Sydney, I live in Bondi, is, is kind of all mellow sensuality, you know, whereas down in, in Bruny Island, it's a hard, it's a tumultuous sky with, with moments of great clarity off the Southern Ocean. And it happens to just kind of, this little place called Tasmania happens to sit under it. And I wasn't prepared, I don't think, to open out to that experience of that, that sky and that landscape. I wasn't in the right uh, sense, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't the right time for me to open out to that. So but what I found was I was dreaming a lot. So I thought, well, if I look at all these dreams, I had about 20 dreams over that period. And I thought, well, you know, you could do an artist residency where essentially you recorded your dreams. And that would be like recording visual imagery outside external it's, it's like you're dreaming you're, you're in your dreams you're responding to the place you are so that is like an artistic that could form the basis for some artistic work in, an, in, a, in a different sort of way than going and making a bunch of paintings or a bunch of drawings or sculptures out there you know it's like well how did I dream how did I dream? in that place or how did dreams come to be in me in that place and then and then work with that so I'm, I'm thinking about that at the moment and I'm thinking about whether I'll make art an art object or art construction or art something external that you would call art off that or not um, yeah so that, that's the current artistic thinking and another thread is I would like to um, do a small series of paintings that now that I'm not there explore in my own or, or work with the remnant images of, of that sky and that light so uh, they would be abstract in the sense that they won't have a direct figurative link to the external environment but they will be the the, the memory the, the stored um, visual and, and sensory memory and an emotional memory of of that place um, in a in a sort of a more sheltered cocoon, which is where I, you know, living in in a place I've been living for a few years, and I feel comfortable in in, in Sydney, you know, because back on this topic where you know you, you you draw and paint whatever's around you. If you're sitting somewhere, you you know you're you're, you're opening up to the environment immediately around you. Um, so if that feels fairly safe and contained, then it may be easier for me to open out to internally to the experience of, of my memory of the place that I've been, which is Bruni Island. So in, in, in external practical terms, I, I hope to do a series of small, initially small paintings exploring 
the light, the colour, and the light of of a maritime sky and ocean. Yeah. Sounds really amazing. Mm, that's my. They're my two current threads of artistic uh, inquiry. Um, to come back to the idea a little bit earlier about audience, if people listening wanted to to have a look at some of your work or to engage with what you're in the process of of creating, is there a place that they can? Well, you can, can check the website every now and then. Um, though I'm a slow uh, depositor of any type of information on online, um, more through inertia than any technophobia or reluctance. Just um, and if you want to, if you want to look at work, that's you know directly. Then it's it's best to contact me, and you can arrange and and come and, and look at work. Um, they're the two the two best mediums. I'm, and I'm very open to uh, you know interesting d- discussions about how people see the world. So <laughs> Certainly got a sense of that today. Because <laughs> <laughs> the world's an interesting place. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I have one more sort of silly question, and then yeah. I'll, I'll bounce it back to you and ask you if you have any questions for me about what I'm doing or process or anything else as Mm. we sort of wrap up. Um, I find in art and I'm sure in law that there's lots of buzzwords and we all form our own little pet peeves about Mm. these these buzzwords. so what are mine? What are my buzzwords? Well, well, what are yours that you're happy to share? Because I know not all of them may be well, the, the law is, is fairly straightforward. I've got a few. One is, um, there's a word disingenuous. The lawyers love it. They just whip it out all the time. Oh, that's a disingenuous argument. You know, or it's disingenuous for you to suggest this. And, oh, what a wank. You know? So that, that's one that they, you know, that ought to go back in the dictionary and, and they should leave it there for a while. Um, another I- in the law is um, fl- fatally flawed. So you'll see that floating around quite a lot. It's a fatally flawed argument. No, they also can, you know, they can break that up and park it back in the dictionary. Um, so they're the two current ones in the law. Oh, the other thing that I was noticing the other day, you know, another linkage is in, you really see just in the law, you know. It's the idea that lawyers have distinguished careers, right? You know, if you want to talk about a lawyer in a certain positive light and they've spent a bit of time in the law, it'll be they're having a distinguished career. You don't, say, you, you, you don't usually hear that distinguished career used in any other profession quite as much. Um, and I think that's sort of part of the pomposity of the law. Um, so that's the law. Uh, the art... Um, well, art also is fairly f- full of uh, of jargon, and perhaps the be- it, perhaps you just read any piece of writing on on art, and it it can except John Burge is pretty good. He's very political, of course, so he he's always gets run through the Marxist sort of take on the world, but he does seem to avoid some of the more um, damaging art. Jargon. The, the big one at the moment is invited. There's a lot of inviting goes on in in 
art in art. So the picture invites you to, you know, or, or the viewer is invited to in, in talking about some artwork. I don't think pictures do do much inviting. That's one of my pet peeves. It's just, and I guess that's de demonstrative of um, the challenge of 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 talking across worlds between a viewer and and an art object and and the the, the um, reviewer usually not necessarily a, cr a critic but a reviewer is, tr is is trying to sort of find a way to to bring one to the other um, so it probably says more about you know the the art reviewer invites the viewer to look at the art object like this rather than the painting is inviting the viewer um, so it's a challenge for the the reviewer as how and of course like a, you know, a good reviewer works around that but I guess I guess all these things are really people struggling with with engaging very directly with how they sense and feel and think about something and finding the word that really works for them and so if things are under tight schedules and everything you default to the cliche you default to the to the common herd thing that, you, that, that that's floating around in the cultural ethos of, of the of the moment um, yeah, so they're just my—they're they're just the current little peeves. Um, yeah, they're—they're they're the kind of literary, you know, the language peeves. I guess the visual peeves. The drip painting's been around for a while, so you know, visually the kind of drip thing is getting a bit worked. The other thing I, that I find intriguing—it's less less of a peeve—is. Despite the protestations to the contrary, um, I think all, all art schools produce a certain style. Um, so the challenge for all graduates of art schools is how to move beyond that style or incorporate that or take the elements and find their own way of engaging with the world. I did a couple of things I remember from art school. One of them was a comment made by uh, an outside um, curator and gallery um, person, and a very established person, been around a lot, and his comment was, you know, one of the best things to do when you get out of art school is, you know, you're going to have to support yourself, so go and get a job that's got nothing to do with art, uh, and, and then and make art, because then you get exposed to all this other stuff that, that art is really about. You know, if, if you go and get, an, and I read that as being, if, if, if you get a job in the art um, world, then you, you or your influences are the art world, um, and it becomes very hermetically closed um, relationship. And, and and certainly, you know, to me that the period in the in the Blue Mountains, um, I went there because I was coming out of a very challenging time uh, personally, and um, I needed it felt the right thing to sit and look at the landscape for long periods of time, and to and to out of that came. Uh, a desire to um, connect with the landscape and then out of that I thought well I'd like to start making art again so I'll use art tools and mediums to connect with the landscape and so that was the process it wasn't 
a process of oh, I'm going to make this sort of art or I've got this to say about that or, or I'm going to do representational drawing or it was I want to do this. So it had nothing to do in that way with any sense of an art world or even particular, I mean I've been trained uh, and fairly well trained at, at the National Art School so as I got into it I a lot of that started coming back about how to work with colour and how colour works and how perspective you know, from a re renaissance perspective type ideas work but 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 that wasn't you know I didn't sort of go into the landscape thinking I'm going to make some pictures I went into the landscape thinking I need time to be in the landscape and I want to connect and uh, this seemed like a way that's that's deeper and more nourishing than walking or climbing the landscape which, which seemed to be which were quite physical um, and so that that's a roundabout way of going you know to the, 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 what attracts me a lot about art about what art can be and do is so much in the world not not in the in the institutional um, structures and dynamics around that assist that process it's, it's you know the art is for the world it's for being in the world you know, and it's for well that's my current thinking you know and um, you know it's you know some Vonnegut I think I came across a little quote from Kurt Vonnegut some time ago and, and, and I'm paraphrasing it it was um, along the lines of you know, the purpose of an art is to is to grow your soul, and I thought that's quite—I quite like that. And um, I sort of adapted to thinking, well, you know, what art? My experience of making art over those years up in the mountains was that it, nour it nourishes your soul. I don't know whether it grows or not, but, but this, you know, it's another whole topic. You know, the idea of what's a soul, but let's call it a soul. That, but it's some part of you that that feels nourished by this type of engagement with the world. Now that might be an inner world. I'm not, you know, it might be purely an engagement with an inner world, but there's a certain danger, I guess, of a sort of, a, a sort of, a, um, of getting lost into, ungrounded in that. Whereas you can do both through engagement with the external world. This episode of the Art Scoop podcast was made possible with thanks to Warwick Bird and Michael Modernoski.